0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This Idea Travelog lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper and more nuanced ways. We all remember where we were when we heard that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. For me, it threw me back to a moment, actually, when I first met her. It was a few years ago. We were at a dinner she was hosting at the Supreme Court, and I was so overwhelmed by her presence that I practically couldn't string a sentence together. We met each other, I think, as we were walking in the hallway. I said who I was, and she said, Oh, I know you, smiling, shaking my hand. Yes, I've read your articles. And I'm thinking, like, did she say articles as in more than one And that's a good thing, I'm wondering, noting that she is, yes, still smiling. So apparently this is a good thing. But I'm stuck with a silly grin on my face, searching for something clever, something insightful, just something plain out lucid, but nothing remotely academic or legal comes to my mind. I was starstruck into speechlessness in front of this diminutive, soft-voiced legal giant. So in hindsight, there's so much I could have said. We had lots of commonalities I could have spoken into. I could have talked about the fact that we both graduated from Cornell. We both matriculated to Harvard Law School. We both found our way against all the odds to joining the faculty at Columbia Law School. We both did a stint at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, but I couldn't come up with anything to say about any of those things even the fact that i had many conversations with her daughter and my colleague jane ginsburg about being daughters of mothers who were pathbreaking um hard working but non-cooking mothers. (laughs) Nothing came to mind. So what was so hard about that? That's what I started thinking about recently. And I guess it really is a question that all of us are facing right now. Do we measure up, especially in this current moment of reflection and activation after her passing? The question for an entire industry of social justice lawyers, thinkers, activists, advocates, academics, those of us who have inherited the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and her accomplices like Polly Murray. The question that all of us have to face, I think, is can we carry the great weight of figuring out how to steer our society back from the brink? Well, on this episode, I'm joined by some of the leading thinkers in the progressive legal world to explore Justice Ginsburg's towering legacy on the Supreme Court. Can we face up to the battle over the Supreme Court? Can we confront the profound consequences of the last failure to prioritize the courts over the last several decades? As Erwin Chemerinsky reminds us, Exit polls revealed that the number one issue motivating Trump voters in 2016 was the Supreme Court, while it was only number four for Clinton voters. The importance of this conversation was underscored by the nightmarish presidential debate that had taken place the night before, in which the President of the United States instructed white supremacists to stand back and stand by on Election Day. Now this unprecedented act capped off a week in which anti-racist and anti-sexist discourse was declared to be un-American by the paradoxically named Executive Order on Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping. Now this effectively outlawed diversity and anti-discrimination work throughout the federal government and federally funded programs. You can find a link to this effort to federalize the assault on anti-racism in the episode notes. So we began the conversation by hearing from Erwin Chemerinsky, professor of law and dean at Berkeley Law. He's also the author of We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. From there, we move to a panel with Sherilyn Ifill, the President-Director-Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and author of A Perilous Path, Talking Race, Inequality, and the Law. Devin Carbato, Professor of Law at UCLA and author of Acting White, Rethinking Race in Post-Racial America. Cheryl Harris, Professor of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at UCLA Law School and author of Whiteness as Property. Melissa Murray, Professor of Law at NYU and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. And Suzanne Goldberg. Executive Vice President of University Life at Columbia University, Founding Director of Columbia Law School's Sexuality and Gender Law Clinic, and Co-Director of Columbia Law School's Center for Gender and Sexuality. I began by asking Erwin Chemerinsky to pick a quote of Justice Ginsburg's that he found particularly resonant and to provide a little bit of context as to
1: why. I took one from a Supreme Court opinion. It was a dissent by Justice Ginsburg from April 6th of this year. It was a case called Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee. Wisconsin was holding its presidential primary on Tuesday, April the 7th. There was an enormous increase in requests for absentee ballots for obvious reasons. So the judge said, I'll extend the time for ballots to be received by the state till Monday, April 13th. The Federal Court of Appeals had no problem with it, but the Supreme Court five to four reversed. And Justice Ginsburg wrote a terrific dissent and at the risk of paraphrasing and losing the eloquence, which he said was, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We shouldn't put people to a choice between voting and risking their health. This shows concern for and awareness for the human consequences of law. I also picked this because we approached November 3rd. There's going to be a need for federal courts to protect the right to vote, especially for people of color. And I worry very much what the majority of the court is going to do. And We're not going to have a Justice Ginsburg to write a dissent like this.
0: Erwin, I think some folks will probably wonder, well, dissent is a dissent. What, what's really, first of all, the loss of a dissenting voice? And I think more broadly, what is the role Of dissent in the Supreme Court. She's going to be known, has been known as one of the great dissenters. What's great about having someone who articulates the possibilities that could have been?
1: Many things. She was born in 1933. She was a Jewish woman who went to law school at a time when women weren't being hired as lawyers. She saw things that none of the other justices had seen, and sometimes that voice can make a difference. But if it doesn't, still having or there is a dissent matters. It matters in terms of resonating with public opinion. Dissents matter in rallying people, and dissents matter for the future. They can be a basis for the court to do something different and better at some later time.
0: You know, you mentioned just now about the role of the dissent in rallying people with with an eye towards the future, with an eye towards an opportunity for ways of thinking about social problems that might not uh, rise to the top at one moment, but because it's part of the conversation, there may be a day for it in the future. And some may say that we're in a moment where the conservatives are realizing that long-term strategy. And I'm just wondering what we need to understand, or maybe more broadly, What is not understood about the importance of the court? What is it that you think gets in the way of this being the galvanizing issue for liberals and their constituencies that it seems to be for conservatives and their constituencies?
1: To begin with, we've got to remember how much the court affects all of us, often in the most intimate and important aspects of our lives. We also should remember that there's rarely been a liberal court in American history. Really, it was only between about 1962 and 1969 that the Warren Court was a liberal court in the way we remember it. Since 1960, we've had 32 years of Republican presidents and 28 years of Democratic presidents. But Republicans have picked 15 Supreme Court justices. Democrats have picked only seven. That's just the accident of when vacancies occurred. So we shouldn't think that the laws that exist now was anyway any way preordained to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. It's just who we've ended up having justices. Had Hillary Clinton won rather than Donald Trump, we would be talking about a very different court for years and decades to come.
0: You know, last night in in that thing that we witnessed, uh, there was a moment when uh, President Trump seemed to taunt uh, former Vice President Biden uh, about the fact that President Obama left dozens and dozens of, of, of open seats. And I want to know, first of all, what, what is he not saying? Um, how is that frame sort of distorting what happened? And then on the other hand, is there anything in that recognition that we as People who are concerned about the direction of the court really have to grapple with when it comes to how much of a priority the courts have been uh, with uh, Democratic administrations in the past.
1: There was a Republican Senate during the last two years, the Obama administration, and the Republican Senate simply wouldn't confirm President Obama's nominees for the federal courts. They wouldn't do it for Chief Judge Merrick Garland. They wouldn't do it for federal court of appeals judges. They wouldn't do it for district court judges. So the reason why those vacancies were left open was a Republican Senate wouldn't be willing to consider and confirm them. Now there is a lesson there. If the Democrats should win the Senate in November, and if Joe Biden wins, he should do what President Trump has done, appoint and fill every vacancy while he's got the Democratic Senate. You never know when the Democrats will lose the Senate. Not to wait. Both President Clinton in his first two years and President Obama in his first two years didn't make judges the priority that they should have done.
0: And why, why not? I mean, that is really the puzzle, right? Um, because as we're seeing, yes, uh, it was important to get health care. Yes, it was important to advance the agenda. But if we don't pay attention to the courts, those agendas are obviously going to be short lived. So what's behind the asymmetry and why the Republicans really seem to get this court thing and our side, maybe not so much?
1: It's a great question. The Republican base has cared much more about judges than the Democratic base. In 2016, exit polls showed that the number one reason people gave for voting Trump was the Supreme Court. But for those who voted for Hillary Clinton, the Supreme Court was only number four on the list. It's not simply leaving vacancies open, it's also who's picked to be judges. Republican presidents have generally picked from the far right. Democratic presidents have picked much more for the center. I think it's important that we put pressure on a Democratic president to pick quickly, for the Democratic Senate to confirm quickly, but for that president to very much pick progressives.
0: So Erwin, you know, a lot of people don't really understand the relationship between politics and uh, appointments to the courts. And I wonder if you might just take us behind the scene, pull the curtain back a little bit, just tell us about your experience in being vetted for a possible appointment to the courts.
1: This is something I haven't thought about in a long time and I don't know if I've ever talked about it publicly. In 1998, I got a call from the White House Counsel's Office saying I was on their short list to be considered for the Ninth Circuit. They asked me, would I be interested? Did I have any skeletons in my closet? That would be an embarrassment. I said, I didn't have any skeletons in my closet. I've lived a very boring, though very blessed and wonderful life. You're not going to want me. I said, I've got a liberal track record on every issue. I write op-eds all the time, law review articles. And he said all the nice things he could say. And for about Oh, a month, every day I got a call from an intern in the White House Counsel's Office asking me for another law review article or if there's a text of a speech, tax returns. And then after about a month, he called me and said, you're too liberal to get confirmed by the Senate. Said, sorry, we can't go forward with your nomination. I've got to tell you, while I would have very much liked that opportunity, I wasn't the least bit surprised. I knew at that moment in time, they weren't gonna pick somebody as liberal as me.
0: Yeah. And I think it's just so important for people to understand uh, both the fact that when we're in a moment like this where debating who's going to get appointed and the argument is, well, we have to take politics out of it, politics are already in when it comes to who's even seen as eligible. And we're not talking about Republicans who thought you were too liberal. We're talking about Democrats. So um, what that does uh, to the pool, what that does to advocacy, anyone who has, in their possible future the idea of potentially being a judge may think twice about writing op-eds. And that obviously undermines, in I think, a significant way, our democracy. Um, I know you have to go, so let, let me just ask you my last two questions. Let's say that we are miraculously. Uh, constituting the Judiciary Committee, and we get a chance to ask the nominee a question. What question would you ask?
1: Judge Barrett, you've repeatedly said and written you're an originalist. Can you identify any originalist with your philosophy who has ever supported a constitutional right to abortion, who has ever found protection for gay, lesbian, and bisexual rights and transgender rights under the Constitution?
0: Thank you so much for being with us, Erwin. So I'm gonna turn it over now to Sherilyn Eiffel, President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So, Sherilyn, many are remembering Justice Ginsburg legacy as the feminist equivalent of Thurgood Marshall. So, in thinking about her legacy on the court, you've said that the Lily Ledbetter case is one that stands out for you as an example of what difference it makes to have someone on the court with a particular aptitude that comes from being a civil rights litigator. So what briefly was that case and how did her perspective give a vantage point to address what the other justices didn't seem to see or understand?
2: you know i have talked kim about the fact that this is the last civil rights lawyer on the bench and why that matters her dissent in the lily ledbetter case was so important this is the case involving the woman who brought a a claim uh that she was paid significantly less than her male counterparts for essentially doing the same job and the supreme court essentially said that her claim was time barred and justice ginsburg in her dissent talks about why a woman would not know that she was being paid less than her male counterparts. And of course, we all know that Justice Ginsburg was a women's rights lawyer at the ACLU. She well understood what pay discrimination was, but she also understood why women are often on the job, not in a position to learn what their colleagues, their male counterparts are making. They don't sit in the break room and talk about their salaries with one another. And that employers may actually have an incentive to keep that information secret to prevent precisely the kind of claims that Lilly Ledbetter eventually brought. And Justice Ginsburg ends the dissent by saying, you know, it's now in Congress's court. Uh, and indeed, Congress takes it up, and the Lilly Ledbetter Equal Pay Act becomes the first piece of legislation that President Obama signs after he comes into office in 2009. So, it's important to me because what she's able to bring to that dissent is what we see persistently Ginsburg doing and what Thurgood Marshall did consistently as well. If you are a civil rights lawyer, as I am, then it's critically important to us always that we prove our case. The inferences never go in our direction. So, we actually have to make a record, and we're very, very conscious of that. We just won a critically important voting rights case today, expanding absentee voting opportunity for voters in Alabama that we brought on behalf of Black voters who are particularly susceptible to COVID-19. And in the 197-page opinion that the trial judge writes, you hear all of the facts that we marshaled. And that's what we do, because we have to. We can't win any other way. So when you see Justice Ginsburg talking about what really happens It's bringing a kind of reality to it, but it's also that engagement with facts and the record. We see her do this also in the dissent in the Shelby County versus Holder case. Everyone talks about the famous line from her dissent, getting rid of the preclearance requirement is like getting rid of an umbrella in a storm because you're not getting wet. It's a beautiful line. But the beauty of that dissent for me is the meticulous way that Justice Ginsburg goes through the record. She goes through the history, of the Voting Rights Act, the history of each reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. She talks about the fact that the Department of Justice had objected and denied changes to voting in the jurisdictions, mostly Southern, but not exclusively, but mostly Southern, covered by uh, Section 5 700 times. And that in most of those instances, a majority of those instances, that denial was accompanied by a finding that the changes that were being proposed were intentionally discriminatory. So she's bringing out the actual record that Congress uh, looked at. And this is vitally important in ways that I think people don't understand. And it's not unrelated to the issue of the kinds of people, lawyers, that we're putting on the federal bench. We don't have any civil rights lawyers left on the bench. And it seems almost um, like something from the past that we would imagine that a civil rights lawyer even would be on the Supreme Court. If
0: if we don't have people who were civil rights lawyers, if we don't have people who are actually practicing, who is now constituting the Supreme Court? What is it that people need to know about who has been appointed basically to be the
2: referees in American society? Well, almost all of the justices on the Supreme Court are are former federal appellate judges. Most of them have backgrounds as former prosecutors, as U.S. attorneys or in, in the Justice Department. So that's a very skewed lens for a profession that actually is quite broad. And in fact, when we think about the things that we point to about the American legal system that we think of as being at the highest level and that we try to transport to other countries, they actually don't have anything to do with prosecution. They mostly have to do with the protections that we afford people in criminal defense. Right, They have to do with the right to counsel. They have to do with being able to confront the witnesses who uh, are opposed to you. They have to do with fairness and the jury of your peers. And think about all the lofty things we say about our legal system. Most of them actually sit in the space of matters associated with criminal defense and with civil rights, not at all with prosecution. That's not what we brag about, right? And yet we have essentially turned not only the Supreme Court but the federal appellate courts over to people whose foundational experience as practicing lawyers is as prosecutors and when we get decisions from the federal courts and we're kind of confused about them sometimes because they seem at odds with what we know to be the reality of the way injustice works in the lives of ordinary people we should remember that the people who are making the assessments actually have not themselves for the most part been engaged with the law at that level and that then makes the record even more important. It makes it Im- more important that those judges have the humility to defer to the presentations that are made uh, of, of litigators who actually know more, and even of district court judges who actually know more. Even what Irwin just you know, pointed to the Wisconsin case where the court you know, decided that it was too close to the election and they, they wouldn't um, allow the district court's order going forward. The district court's opinion is detailed in describing what voters in Wisconsin are facing and the challenges they're facing in the COVID-19 pandemic to vote at that period in March. And that's just kind of swept away and ignored by first the circuit court and then by the Supreme Court saying, no, no, it's too close to the election and we're we're not going to consider this. And that's the picture that kind of riled me up in March. It's just watching people risking COVID to vote. So yes, I, I worry that on the federal bench writ large, and particularly on the federal appellate bench and on the Supreme Court, Uh, We talk about diversity, of course, racial diversity, critically important, gender diversity, critically important, but also the narrowness of the professional background diversity of the lawyers who are becoming federal judges is super alarming.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for that, Cheryl. And, And, you know, for folks outside of, you know, our profession of law, maybe it's inside pool, but what we're trying to do is shed light on how these decisions, Actually, shape all of our lives so that it makes a difference to us when it comes to exercising our right to have a say in those who are entrusted with the responsibility to make the decisions that shape our lives. So, thank you so much, Sherilyn. I really want to lift up the point about what you're saying about prosecutors on the court, the preponderance of them. Uh, And it seems to be a perfect opportunity to turn to Devin to talk to us about what is playing out in the court's decisions about criminal procedure. So Devon, what case or quote do you wanna hold up as illustrative of some aspect of Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence?
3: Thanks, Kim. It really is a pleasure to be a part of uh, this conversation. I do want to talk about constitutional criminal procedure. And I think some of the best quotes that uh, Justice Ginsburg has written are probably in the domain of what we typically think of as equality law. So I want to talk about the body of constitutional law that focuses on the constitutional constraints placed on police investigatory practices. That is to say, what does the Constitution say about what police officers can do in our lives? Now, as a matter of text, the Constitution says very little indeed, which is precisely why Supreme Court justices are all the more important. And the particular area of constitutional criminal procedure on which I'm going to focus is, is sort of for the Fourth Amendment law. And Some of you I know have heard me speak about Fourth Amendment law on this show before. I'm tempted to quiz you, but Crunchyroll won't let me do that. So, So let me just break it down very quickly and then give you a sense of why Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudential voice, even in the context of dissents, are critically important. So the Fourth Amendment, as many of you know, protects us from unreasonable searches and seizure. So that requires us to ask three big questions. One, if the government does X thing, Is X thing a search or seizure? If X is not a search or seizure, the government gets to do it without any justification. B, assuming that X is a search or seizure, then the question is, well, is that search or seizure reasonable? If the answer is yes, it's reasonable, the government is is all good. And that's the argument that the government is going to make. The third question, assume now that X is an unreasonable search and seizure, do you necessarily win? The answer might be no, qualified immunity. Well, the answer might be no, evidence gets suppressed. So let me give you two cases and then I'll stop that points to the critical position Justice Ginsburg has occupied. So one question has to do with what is a search? And the case that puts this into sharp relief is US versus Drayton. So in this case, three police officers get on a bus, one stays at the entrance of the bus, and two of us move to the back to target Two black men. They ask, what are you doing? Let me see your ID. Can I search you? Can I search your bag? The question is, are these men seized? Are they free to leave? The court says yes. They were supposed to just get up, ignore the officers, and carry on about their business. Justice Ginsburg joins a dissent and saying that's madness. No reasonable person would feel free to leave in that context. And in so doing, she highlights the reality of law and policing in people's lives. The other case that I want to focus on is a case called Florida versus JL. And and think about the Amy Cooper, Kristen Cooper scenario as I tell you these facts. Some person calls the police and says that a black man with a gun is out there. The cops show up, they see three black young men, I mean, they're like teenagers, and they frisk them. And the question is whether or not that frisk is a reasonable seizure based on that anonymous tip. Justice Ginsburg says, absolutely no. Whatever reasonable suspicion means, and we know it doesn't mean a lot, it doesn't mean that you get to stop people based on anonymous tip that there's a black man out there in a plaid shirt, so she pushes back both on what's reasonable as a seizure and what's a seizure to begin with. And both of those moves has profound implications on the conversations we're having about policing and Black lives. Because the narrow the scope of uh, police conduct vis-a-vis what is a seizure, the earlier we say it's a seizure, the greater our freedoms. The more we declare searches and seizures unreasonable, the greater our freedoms. And Justice Ginsburg has been helpful in both of those respects.
0: So, so Devin, let, let me um, ask you just for a, kind of a quick riff on what we heard last night. You know, we have been in this conversation in an intense way since George Floyd uh, was killed, but it's a conversation that many folks have been having for decades our effort to say it's not just a bad apple problem was actually um turned on its head and 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 uh vice president biden sort of went with the bad apple you know framework what aspects of constitutional criminal procedure discourse actually shift away from the bad apple frame uh, to more robust ways of thinking about what those constitutional rights look like and, and where might we put Justice Ginsburg in that shift?
3: So it's a terrific question. And the space to move beyond the bad apple frame in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is really circumscribed. But here are two examples that um, are efforts on the part of Justice um, Ginsburg to do precisely that. So in the first case, I mentioned the Drayton case. What the court basically says is, The cops weren't acting really, really, really bad. Sure, they went on a bus. Sure, they questioned you. Sure, they asked for permission to search. It's not like they brandished their gun. It's not like they were yelling. It's not like they were saying, you know, get up and listen to us. That's a bad cop. And when we have a bad cop acting out in that way, we'll call it a seizure. So you can see already how the court is looking for a particular manifestation of a bad cop before it calls it a seizure. Another context in which you see this Is um, the exclusionary rule. So, the basic idea behind the exclusion rule is this you violate the Constitution, police officer, the evidence is inadmissible. There are some cases where um, the stipulation is that there's a constitutional violence, violation rather, and the evidence don't go out. So, here's a category of such cases police officer has a warrant, they go search someone's house with a warrant. Or they see someone with a warrant. It turns out the warrant is constitutionally infirm. So the argument that the person then makes is you seized me or searched me based on an unconstitutional warrant. Therefore, the evidence goes out. Classic arguments. In that space, the court has said no, the fact that it's an unconstitutional warrant doesn't matter unless the cop acted flagrantly. Again, uh, Justice Ginsburg has pushed back against that to raise questions about the structural problem of introducing evidence against a stipulation that what you have is an unconstitutional seizure or an unconstitutional search because the warrant was infirm. The same logic applies to a qualified immunity where the two questions are, did you violate the constitution? That's not enough you have to violate a clearly established rule. So it's a really bad cop. It's not just a cop who violates the Constitution, it's a cop who violates the Constitution against the backdrop of a really, really clearly established rule. So again, Justice Ginsburg, in dissent, is pushing back against the way in which this bad Apple narrative has found its way into the jurisprudence, which is precisely why we need to pay attention to the relationship between logics that are appearing in these cases and discourses that are traveling in social life.
0: And and on that note, I'll just put a pen in for a moment discourses that travel and discourses that are interrupted or extinguished. So let's just remember that we're in a moment right now when at least uh, anti-racism as a discourse across many different inflections, uh, from implicit bias to critical race theory, is being interrupted uh, by this White House. So we have to pay attention to what flows, what doesn't flow, Uh, what makes its way up and what someone can actually think and believe and still be eligible to be a decision maker like a member of the Supreme Court. So, Cheryl, let me turn to you and ask what case or quote you want to put
4: on the table. Well, thank you, Kim. And I really do appreciate being on the panel with all of my colleagues. I could just listen to everybody and not have to talk. But since I have to sing for my supper, I think I'll I'll try. I wanna talk about Gratz versus Michigan. This was the companion case to Grutter. These were the two cases um, involving a challenge by disappointed applicants, one to the law school under Grutter and another Jennifer Gratz to the undergraduate school at the University of Michigan. The law school and the undergraduate program had affirmative action programs, but they were different. The law school's program took race into account as one factor in what it considered to be holistic review, while the undergraduate program assigned points uh, for various applicant characteristics on a scale of 150. The court upheld the use of race as a factor in holistic admissions in the law school. But in Graz, the majority of the court, Justice Ginsburg, writing in dissent, rejected the undergraduate points program, applying what it called strict scrutiny Justice Ginsburg's dissent in this case is absolutely wonderful. It is one of the most lucid critiques of colorblindness that I think we have actually in modern jurisprudence. And basically what she said is that if we look at this plan, the majority's assumption that race conscious remedies like affirmative action should be measured by the same yardstick as racial segregation is fundamentally wrong. To say the two centuries of struggle for the most basic of civil rights have been mostly about freedom from racial categorization, rather than freedom from racial oppression, is to trivialize the lives and deaths of those who have suffered under racism. To pretend that the issue presented in Baki is the same as the issue in Brown is to pretend that history never happened and that the present doesn't exist. It's not just that she is objecting on the basis of conceptual grounds. She's basically saying that the court is insisting on the same standard review for all racial classifications and she says it would be fitting if in fact the nation were free of the vestiges of rank discrimination, but then she goes on to talk about the empirical evidence that shows that we are not. She speaks to unemployment, poverty, access to health care, neighborhoods and schools, all of which she say are areas in which race has mattered in a, continues to matter in a very profound way. Uh, Equal protection does not mean and cannot be defined entirely by equal treatment. Equal protection does not require that we ignore relevant differences. Even though this opinion garnered only two votes, again, I come back to it as one of the most important dissections of the logical flaw of colorblindness. There have been several sort of fellow travelers, Tim Wise, Claude Steele, and others who have pointed out that while the critique of the point system was that it was giving a benefit to Blacks and Latinos. That is, it was a preferential treatment of Blacks and Latinos by awarding 20 points for being a member of a group that had experienced racial discrimination. In fact, the question may be whether or not there were too few points being assigned for that when one considers the backdrop against which there were points assigned for people who were residents of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We can guess which racial group that benefits or the four points to children of alumni, we can think about who that might benefit, or the 10 points for students who went to the state's top schools, or the eight points for those who took a full slate of advanced placement courses. If we start to add up the number of points that were overwhelmingly going to favor white applicants, the question on the table is not whether 20 points was too much, but whether or not it was too few. Again, the point is not whether or not the point system per se, is the right way to evaluate these social realities. The question is, are we going to ever acknowledge that the existing baseline is itself fundamentally asymmetrical? It is not a case of taking race into account against the backdrop of a neutral ground. The ground is not at all neutral, and I think the the brilliance of Ginsburg's dissent here is that she acknowledges and recognizes that.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and fundamental to the critique that you're elevating that Justice Ginsburg pointed out, you know, is the way that advantage and disadvantage is baked in, it's cooked in, it's in the baseline. Now, some would call that white privilege, um, and others would say this is precisely the kind of conversation that we cannot have anymore, right? So in a very significant way, Justice Ginsburg' dissent is precisely that kind of un-American conversation that our existing president would say cannot be taught. So maybe we can't even teach uh, Justice Ginsburg's uh, dissent in any federal uh, program. But while I have you on this, I want to see if we can just squeeze in, if we can, a little bit of how that sentiment that to talk about how racial advantages are embedded in systems that distribute opportunity like admissions or like a test to determine who gets to be a firefighter. To actually acknowledge that and try to interrupt it and make for more equitable measurements is itself discriminatory. Can you just hit just the high point about what she had to say about that that seems to be so salient right now?
4: So I take it you're referring to her dissent in Ricci versus New Haven. And this is a case in which disappointed white applicants for promotion in the New Haven Fire Department claimed that they had been discriminated against when the city of New Haven canceled the results of the selection process that had relied on a test that was weighted 60%, was a written test, and it had unfairly and unnecessarily excluded qualified Black and Latino applicants. So the city, in order to avoid liability for a disparate, what's called a disparate impact claim. That's where you use a neutral criteria, but it has a disparate effect. Um, The city said, forget about this test. Let's start over. Let's start with a clean slate. Let's get a better mechanism for evaluation. Well, the plaintiffs, the white plaintiffs said, oh, no, no, no. If you get rid of the test, you're discriminating against us. Well, the majority agreed with the plaintiff's claim essentially that the ordinary application of anti-discrimination law amounted to an injury to whites. So RBG's dissent here really dissected the illogic of this position. She pointed out it was a deviation from precedent, but more importantly, she identified the longstanding history of exclusion of Blacks and Latinos from the New Haven Fire Department and the decades of litigation that tried to address it, and basically was saying that the notion that disparate impact law itself can amount to some kind of cognizable claim on the part of whites is tied in, I think, to, again, this critique of colorblindness that she's making in Gratz. That is to say, the presumption is that unless the system favors whites, it is somehow, in fact, discriminating against them. And in that regard, what we have is the selection process being attacked as discrimination is really equivalent, uh, it is tied in very much with what you pointed out at the beginning the executive order, sort of stating that to critique the existing regime as disfavoring racially subordinated groups and favoring whites is itself an injury. To even just state that is itself some kind of cognizable injury. And it's why, for example, the Ricci case was called by many of the conservative. Uh, columnists and writers at the time as the civil rights lawsuit of its time. He was upheld as the sort of icon of civil rights litigation because he was attacking anti-discrimination law as being unfavorable to whites. And I want to just say one thing. The case was constantly described as a case about affirmative action. It was not a case about affirmative action. It was a case about ordinary Title VII anti-discrimination law, meaning How do you prove a case when you have a neutral criteria that is unfairly excluding people of different groups?
0: The idea that just the basic operation of anti-discrimination law is effectively reverse discrimination is an idea that is now underscoring so much of what we're seeing now, including the executive order. Um, So I'm going to go back to our conversation by turning to Melissa Murray, Professor of Law at NYU. What case or quote do you want to bring into the conversation that amplifies her legacy in
5: this respect? The case that I want to highlight is one that Ginsburg did not litigate, but rather filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief in this appeal to the Supreme Court. It was in a case called Coker versus Georgia, which was a challenge to Georgia's death penalty for the rape of an adult woman. The case came before the Supreme Court in the 1970s. This was around the time where the court heard a number of different challenges to the death penalty. But this one is really different because the question was about the penalty being used in the context of rape. And in her brief to the court, Justice Ginsburg really highlighted the gendered aspects of using the death penalty as a penalty for the crime of rape. She argued that it really served to highlight the degree to which women were seen historically as the property of men, either their husbands or their father. To punish someone with death for taking someone else's property, um, not only use death in a way that was perhaps inconsistent with the ways we might think about it today, but again, in a way that devalued the inherent humanity of women and really tethered them to men and understood them in the context of men. But she didn't stop there. She also considered the way in which the use of the death penalty, particularly in the South, particularly in the context of African American men accused of raping white women had really racialized origins and context. And so she argued that not only was there this gender history, there was also a way in which the death penalty served as a means of policing the sexuality of Black men. And more importantly, she contrasted this with the state's indifference to the sexuality of Black women when they were the victims of sexual assault. So it was a really important um, brief, not one that I think gets a lot of attention. I know that there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter in the days since her death, arguing that although she was very much an ardent feminist, she was not really someone whose jurisprudence had an impact on the lives of Black women. And I think this brief is a rejoinder to that position and surely her jurisprudence more generally is a rejoinder to that. One of the things that she really worked hard at in her career was dismantling sex stereotypes that posited women as dependents and homemakers and caregivers and men as breadwinners. And surely, dismantling those stereotypes had benefits for white women, but they also really benefited black women because we have never fit comfortably into this ideal of true womanhood, the caretaker, the homemaker. We have always worked. We have often been the breadwinners for our family. So any jurisprudence that focuses on dismantling sex stereotypes redounds to the benefit of Black women. And she also addressed this in her litigation strategy. There's a 1973 case, Cox versus Stanton, in which she sued the state of North Carolina for sterilizing without consent a young African-American woman who, as a condition of continuing to receive public, of, public benefits for her family, um, she was sterilized. Um, she was told that the sterilization would be reversible and she never learned that it was not until she was engaged to be married and she went to a gynecologist to find out about becoming pregnant and was told that she never would become pregnant. Um, It had a tragic impact on her life. Her fiance left her. She later tried to adopt a boy and she wasn't able to because she was unmarried. And this was I mean, her life was utterly ruined because of the state's imposition. So it shows a lot of different things. One, that women's reproductive lives and reproductive rights are not exhausted by the question of abortion, but also that this was a particular kind of reproductive injustice that was borne disproportionately by women of color.
0: You know, thank you so much for, for raising um, and showing how anti-stereotyping does impact, does uh, bring uh, women of color into the mix. Um, there, there are uh, elements of her jurisprudence, her thinking that were actually shaped in conversation and partnership with uh, Polly Murray, for example, in having a sober reflection on Justice Ginsburg, What are some of the elements that might in in this moment be hard for people to remember when they're
5: trying to evaluate her legacy? So we have been raised, thanks to you, Kim, on a steady diet of thinking about feminism in intersectional terms. But when Justice Ginsburg was litigating these cases in the 1970s, there wasn't really a vernacular for it. But I think what you could call intersectionality sort of shot through her thinking and certainly her advocacy as a litigator. Um, She, as you say, she really drew on the work of Polly Murray. Polly Murray was an African-American woman. She's also a queer woman. And she's probably one of the most undersung heroes of the civil rights movement. She really was the architect of a strategy of slowly chipping away at what she called Jane Crow. And she argued that Jane Crow was as pervasive and as insidious as Jim Crow, only it worked to sort of keep women in these cages. But those cages were as crippling as laws that segregated the races. So she already began articulating and developing a theory for combating gender discrimination and sex-based discrimination when Ginsburg came along. And to her credit, Ginsburg always acknowledged the debt that she owed Pauli Murray and other feminists who had come before her. She credits Polly Murray in her grandmother brief in Reed versus Reed, which is the first brief that she filed on behalf of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project in a Supreme Court litigation. Um, this was a challenge to Idaho's law that prohibited women from serving as executors of estates, um, and so she was very clear about that. And she talked about the role that Polly Murray's advocacy played. Um, Polly Murray was also referenced in Frontiero versus Richardson in her work there, which is her first or her first argument before the Supreme Court in 1973 when she took up the challenge of that service woman who argued that. Even though she had a husband, she should not have to show that he was dependent on her for more than 50% of his living in order for her to receive the kinds of benefits that male personnel received as a matter of course for their spousal dependence. I think we can't
0: talk about Polly Murray uh, too much, and I just want to underscore that it was her memo uh, that was a foundational piece of the strategy in Brown versus Board of Education. And she seldom gets uh, credit for that. This is a Black woman who is in both race and gender foundational legal strategy making and um, still hasn't really gotten the, the attention that she deserves. So thank you so much for bringing her into this conversation. Suzanne, I want to turn to you. What case or quote do you want to bring into the conversation to amplify what was unique about Justice Ginsburg's
6: jurisprudence? So, I want to talk about Justice Ginsburg's work on stereotypes and her approach to discrimination by government. I want to turn to one immigration case, it's from t- June 2017 as a window onto how Justice Ginsburg broke down sex stereotypes in the law and showed why they cause harm. The case is called Sessions versus Morales-Santana. It's about an immigration law that made it easier for U.S. citizen mothers than U.S. citizen fathers to pass their citizenship onto their children who were born outside of the United States. The mother could have lived in the United States for a year before the child's birth and then pass on U.S. citizenship to her child, while a father would have had to live outside of live in the United States for 10 years or then five years before the child's birth. So the legal question in the case was, can the government treat mothers differently from fathers for immigration purposes? And you might wonder, well, what was the government thinking in enacting this sort of different treatment? In 1940 hearings on the law, the government expressed a concern that the foreign born child would need a close influence from the American parent or else they would turn out to be, quote, more alien than American in character. And so Justice Ginsburg did with this dividing line what she did with so many others. She took a sharp look and and asked, well, if that's your goal, why have different rules for men than for women? And so she explained that the mother-father law was developed at a time when, and I'm quoting here, when two habitual but now untenable assumptions pervaded our law in this area. In marriage, the husband is dominant, wife subordinate, unwed mother, and second, the unwed mother is the natural and sole guardian of a non-marital child. So in the case, she did three important things. First, she wrote that it is stunningly anachronistic for the government to treat unmarried fathers as less qualified and less able than mothers to take responsibility for their children. And I actually wrote a brief on that point, I should note, uh, on behalf of a number of population and family law specialists documenting the social science, showing that In fact, unwed fathers don't walk away from their children the vast majority of the time. And so she got the social science. She actually cited the brief, but most importantly, she got that this is stunningly anachronistic. Second, she recognized the -the on-the-ground consequences of putting this kind of stereotype into the law. And here she says, such laws may deserve men who exercise responsibility for raising their children, making the point that men may, when treated as not taking responsibility for their kids, will take in that message and may risk in this setting and other settings walking away. So she showed us these kinds of assumptions about the roles of men and women intersect with many different fields and areas of law. That is, she didn't just see this as an immigration problem, but she pulled in cases, some of, the, some of which Melissa referred to, dating back to 1971, in which the court rejected sex-based rules in employment, in military benefits, in the administration of estates after somebody has died, in school admissions, in jury service. And then she looked back and pointed to earlier cases where, for example, women were not allowed to get a bartender license unless their husband or their father owned the bar. And so she really brings together all of these pieces, looking directly at the law, seeing the dividing line that the law creates, and then putting a microscope on it or a, a magnifying glass on it and asking us to really think about why is that and showing us that the underbelly of all of this are these outdated, anachronistic and deeply harmful assumptions about the differences between people.
0: And, you know, so much of of how people think about stereotypes now is limited. It's sort of simplistic. And we see in Justice Ginsburg the critique of stereotypes as they relate to disempowerment. Now, I'm really interested now because our sidebar has been on the executive order that just came down. It's called um, an order against race and gender stereotypes. So people might look at that and say, oh... This order is advancing Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence, kind of like the anti-affirmative action efforts in Michigan and in California called themselves the civil rights or equal treatment. A lot of people were confused about it. So what is most distinct about how Justice Ginsburg thought about and critiqued stereotypes
6: and how President Trump is thinking about stereotypes? Let's just say they are using the same word to mean different things. And what we see in this executive order, which is really quite stunning, and I do encourage everybody to, to take a close look at it, is the entrenchment of stereotypes, the entrenchment not only of stereotypes, but really of deep animus, hostility, along racial lines, along sex-based lines, along LGBT sexual orientation and gender identity lines, as a way to say, we're going to take the law and take this idea of equality and turn it on its head. I litigated a long time ago a case called Romer versus Evans, which was about a Colorado amendment that made it much harder for lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people to get legal protections from the state of Colorado and the local governments. And in that case, the advocates of that voter initiative, Their banner really was no special rights, as though anti-discrimination laws provide some sort of special rights. And in that case of an opinion in which Justice Ginsburg participated in striking down that amendment, the court said civil rights laws are not special rights, right? They are laws that enable people to access basic protection to enable full participation in our society. And the idea of special rights is really, um, as the court recognized there, and as we're we're seeing turned on its head today, the idea of special rights is a way to um, foster an incredible amount of confusion in a society that hasn't had the benefit of basic civics education to understand that basic rights are the things that we all need in order to have access to government, schools, courts, and so forth.
0: Right, and when those basic things are are maldistributed, when everybody doesn't have it, having targeted efforts to bring those up to the baseline who don't have it in the first place is not preferential treatment it's not special rights it is equal rights sometimes to do equality you have to treat people differently you can be as uh, discriminatory by treating people who are not the same as though they are as you can be discriminatory treating people who are the same as though they were different just sort of a basic point of equality law. So thank you all for uh, bringing to the table uh, some aspect of Justice Ginsburg's jurisprudence. So we can't not acknowledge one of the critiques. So when all of Justice Ginsburg's clerks gathered, folks noticed that there weren't many dark faces. And in fact, in looking, it seems as though uh, perhaps one uh, of her clerks was African-American.
4: What should we think about this? Some of the issues that that she was analytically very clear about did not manifest itself in the practice. Even the people that are most aware sometimes do not marshal their platform in the very institutions of which they are a part. That's just real, um, and this just sort of demonstrates the really embedded nature of this, even, because
5: we know this was true of Ferga too. It's an appalling record. I mean, there's, there's no other way to say it, and it's legitimate, I think, to criticize her for it. I also think, though, that in criticizing her, we sort of make it a kind of individual choice problem, when in fact, it's actually more of a systemic and institutional problem. Um, it's an issue at law. Long- We have difficulty fueling the pipeline of clerks with students of color, and so I think this is a broader problem than just Justice Ginsburg, but I think we should use this particularly glaring account of it to call it to attention and do something to work on it.
2: Yeah, I would have to agree uh, with Melissa and would say it's very much connected with what I said at the outset, you know, there is a part of the profession that has been reserved in particularly elite ways and that actually, um, you know, fails to actually reach out to and include all of the people who ought to be part um, of this aspect of the profession and the Supreme Court is part of it. You know, Supreme Court clerkships are the elite of the elite. And, um, you know, there is a systemic problem in our profession with the gatekeeping of what constitutes what is elite. So this is an opportunity for us to do some real systemic work around the whole ecosystem around the Supreme Court. That's why I'm talking also about the Federal Circuit Courts and the District Courts. It's not just about the Supreme Court itself. It's an ecosystem that has to be addressed.
0: So have we learned the lesson after Thurgood Marshall became uh, replaced by Clarence Thomas when uh, effectively Thurgood Marshall uh, basically tried to give us a warning. What was it, a black snake, a white snake? They'll all bite you. The question is who they are, not what color they are. It's clear the current nominee was chosen because she was a woman. There's not a lot of complaint about that from the side of the aisle that doesn't like identity politics playing out. Seems like if the identity politics serves a broader ideological goal, it seems to be okay. Are are we getting any hint that this idea of appointing a woman is uh, working to suppress or quell uh, some of what might otherwise be opposition? Is this... Clarence Thomas rehearsed, or is it a new day?
2: I actually regard the Thomas nomination and confirmation ultimately as what kind of freed us from, all, you know, what I think before that had been kind of an understanding that there would not be this kind of public rejection of a Black nominee. Now, I happened to be a young lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund, organization I now lead, when uh, Thomas was nominated. And obviously we were in a very sensitive position because you know, he was going to be replacing Thurgood Marshall. And we did what we do with Supreme Court nominees, which is that we did a deep dive into his record. We read every single thing he ever wrote. We read every speech, we read every decision, we reviewed his record, we issued a decision, and we opposed his confirmation on his record. We were one of the few uh, civil rights groups that opposed his confirmation. This is even before the Anita Hill allegations came out purely on his record and on what we thought would be his position and stance on civil rights issues. And I call it freeing because uh, you know how contentious that was and how much um, even conflict there was within the black community. But after that, it helped us understand that we don't have to uh, hold back from critiquing someone whose record demonstrates their stance and opposition to core civil rights values because they're black. And so I think, that that is the setup for what we are facing today, in which I don't think, that I think people who feel reticent about criticizing Amy Comey Barrett, because she's a woman, already would have been accepting her underlying philosophy. But I think people who don't accept her views and philosophy and stand in opposition to it, will not be cowed by the fact that she is a woman and feel that they can't speak honestly about her record or what she's likely to do. I
4: appreciate um, Sherilyn's observation on this, and I really totally agree, but I guess I, I do see it not so much as us having not been freed, but as some of us not being yet willing to set down our chains. And what I mean by that is that it still seems to be difficult within some aspects of liberal commentary and discourse to critique somebody on the basis of their political views because of the underlying premise that law is somehow distinct from politics and therefore to critique somebody on the basis of their political view is to be injecting a kind of partiality into an institution that should be impartial and should not be making judgments on the basis of of the particular political commitments of the judges and therefore it disables people from marshalling the kind of full-throated critique that the right is fully willing to wage for the reasons that we just talked about when Irwin began to say he was too liberal to be considered. You know, here's a man who's a giant of constitutional law and writing, certainly on the basis of his criteria, there should at least have been an opportunity for him to get to a hearing, but he's get screened out at the front end because of the assumption that his politics are too visible. Well, the Federalist Society has vetted at all of these candidates that we're talking about. None of that is considered disqualifying but it's only disqualifying when it comes to progressives. So I, I guess I totally agree with you, but I say that we are not yet ready to put down, some of us, to
6: put down our chains.
0: Suzanne, you wanted to say, you wanted to jump in on this?
6: I think I would just add two things. One, this is another place where we see the misuse of an, the idea of diversity. It's a feature that women can have diverse views about the rights of women or the rights of, of human beings in general. And so that gets played up that, that those who oppose a nomination like this want to demand a kind of ideological purity on the part of all women, which is of course not at all the issue here. The second is the capacity to hold two ideas at once, right? One is the idea that we do, or many of us at least think it's important, I think it's important that there be women on the Supreme Court, and this is an appropriate seat to have filled by a woman. And at the same time to say that this particular person looking at the person at their views at at her record uh, is somebody who we can critique we can be supportive of having a woman we can be supportive of having more people of color on the court we can be supportive of having people with physical disabilities on the court and not have to say that every person who has that identity or has that kind of appearance is a person who who then gets a a pass on examination of their record well um let me just
0: ask this last thing if anybody has a burning question that you would like
4: to see, or if you were on the Judiciary Committee, you would ask the nominee. What is the role of gender in her appointment? Does the fact that the president stated that he was considering only female candidates, that is clearly that gender was a factor, a critical factor in the selection does it undermine the legitimacy of her appointment as one based on merit? Yes, yes. And
0: in the hashtag, bumper sticker, messaging to our constituency why the court matters.
4: Whose court, our court.
0: What did you say, Devin?
3: Whose court, our court. Our, our courts,
0: courts. <laughs> yes. So we've come to the end. I, first of all, can't thank you all enough. Very, very special thank you to my brilliant colleagues and panelists, Erwin Chemerinsky, Sherilyn Eiffel, Devin Carvato, Cheryl Harris, Melissa Mary, and Suzanne Goldberg. How lucky I am that in one way or the other I'm colleagues with all of them. So thank you so much. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Scheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.
3: Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation.
6: I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need.
3: Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his.
6: And Laura was my girlfriend. It was all I had.
3: What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the
6: cop who put them away? We gotta attack Scarcella. Come and get me.
1: Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.